All right, good morning, everybody. So glad you guys are all here. We are going to jump into a new series starting today, a series called Wisdom and Power. And uh, we're going to be in this for a little while. So if you, uh, we'll start today with some foundational stuff and then jump into some things that go a little bit deeper as we go. So take notes. Uh, It's always a good idea to take notes, have your Bible open. Remember some of these scriptures. I'll talk about some foundational scriptures. Um, But my prayer, my hope is, as we speak into this, that uh, God's going to get a hold of your heart and he's actually going to change and transform you. The Bible talks about... um, our, our mind being renewed is how we're transformed. And so often we get saved, we give our lives to Christ, and if we're not careful, we just kind of sit there as babes in Christ and we never actually change. And so um, the challenge for us is um, that you have to do your own work, right? Yeah, you can't, your pastor can't help you if you don't, if you don't listen to what's going on, and if you, if, you do, if you just listen and don't do anything else about it, then all it's going to do is going to be in one ear and out the other. And the Bible talks about being Doers of the word, not just hearers only. So I just want to challenge you to take notes. Think about what we're saying. Um, I think and pray really hard about the series that we do and um, why we do the series that we do and trying to build foundations. And so we do series often because you take a series, you can go after one, uh, one scripture or one message or one theme. You can go after it and go deep with it. And again, of course, the prayer is, as we do that, that it goes deep inside of you. And, uh, and you, 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 know, you dwell, the Bible says you dwell um, with the word of God richly, you dwell with Jesus richly, and as you do that, it, it transforms your life. So um, just a little bit of, before I jump in, I'm going to jump into 1 Corinthians here in just a second. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 is where I'm going to start. Um, but Paul was making an argument when he talks to the Corinthians. Corinthian church was a church that he was part of planting. Uh, it was an interesting church. If you go read about the history of the Corinthian church, it was a fascinating church. He mentions one part in, in the first chapter. He says that these Corinthians were not lacking in any gift. Now, he didn't say that about any other church. So that's a very unique thing. He said, you guys, when I came to you, and he, and he said, I came with power, and we're going to get into that in just a second. But he said, when you encountered God, you jumped all in, and you received his word richly, but you also received his power and the presence of his spirit, and you're allowing that to work in your life. And then later on, he goes in and says, but you're doing it wrong, <laughs> right? And one of my favorite passages, it says, especially in the King James, it says, I wouldn't have you ignorant brethren. That's not what he meant, though. When he says it that way, he didn't say, I, didn't, I, I wouldn't have you. He's saying, I wouldn't have you ignorant. And so they changed it. <laughs> so uh, when I first read it, though, I could see why you would read it that way, because there, there were some pretty ignorant brethren among them, and they were doing some stuff, like he said at one point. He said, man, even the world doesn't do some of the stuff that you guys are doing. Um, what's really interesting, just as a side note, he never one time came after them with the law. He never tried to take them backwards, having encountered Jesus and who he was and, and the message of grace that changed their, and transformed their lives originally, he didn't go after their maturity by challenging them to the law. In other words, thou shalt not. He didn't go after and say, hey, you know, he said things like, don't you know who you are? So he was going after their identity, and he was reminding them of who they were in Christ. If they were going to mature, the way they were going to mature was the same way that they had, they'd walked into the kingdom, that's through Jesus. So it's helpful to remember that. But the Corinthian church, again, was known for not lacking gifts, was also known for messing up and doing some crazy stuff. But Paul said something in the first part of this book that I've been in ministry now for 30-something years. And this passage, when I read it, literally changed my life. It changed the destiny of my calling, my ministry, everything about what I was doing, 
um, this particular passage was one of the most transformational passages that ever has touched my heart, and it's never gone away. I've gone back to it a million times. I'm back to it again today, 30-something years later. And so I, I hope and I pray that this, pa- this passage is going to get a hold of your heart as well. So let's just jump in. 1 Corinthians 1.22 says this. It says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. So he just talked in the first passage today, when you go back and read it, he talked about the wisdom of the world is confounded, the wisdom, he said the foolishness of God, which is a silly thing to think about, the way he uses that phrase, the foolishness of God. And what he meant by that was the the most minuscule, super basic thought that God would have is far above any wisdom that humanity could ever come up with. That's kind of, he was just making a contrast. So he said, um, Jews demand signs. And then he says, and Greeks look for wisdom. And so the culture, the two prevailing cultures that he was speaking to, Jews were looking for a sign because they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for an outward Messiah that was going to come. He was going to rescue them from the Romans. He was going to set up a kingdom. He was going to be a warrior king. And that's true, but they had missed the whole suffering servant that Isaiah was talking about. So they were looking for outward signs, and, and they were enamored with that, right? But it wasn't because they really wanted to usher in the Messiah. It was more because they had a plan for their own life and their own program more than that. And so he said, Jews look for a sign, and the Greeks look for wisdom. And what the Greeks were doing is they were known for their intellectualism, to figure it out, to think logically. And so you see the word logos numerous times in in, in the Bible, um, where it's talking about Jesus actually as the logos, as the word. And then you you see another word for word in the Bible translated out of the original language, which is rhema. And rhema is the kind of the now word. There's the written word, the solid, stable word, Jesus is, and also the physical written word in your scripture that is the foundation of who we are as believers. And then there's a rhema word where the Spirit of God comes and he takes a now word, a momentary word, and he speaks it into a circumstance or an issue or your identity. He affirms and confirms what is in the written word, and it never contradicts the written word. The rhema word never contradicts the written word. So he's, he's talking about the Greeks look for wisdom. They want, they want logos. They want logic. They want, the, they want things written down. They want things to make perfect sense. And the cross, as he's talking about in the first chapter of Corinthians, didn't make any sense to the Greeks. It didn't make any sense to the Jews because think about it. A, a suffering servant makes no sense. You know, you have a, a conquering Messiah who comes in and he serves everybody. He washes the disciples' feet. He, he's humble. <laughs> he comes riding in on a donkey instead of on a, on a white horse, uh, at least this time, right? And so they totally missed it. And so he said, this is what's happening. There's the wisdom of the world. And he's talking about both the Jews and the Greeks. And he said, and they just get it totally wrong. But that's not how you receive Jesus. So he's talking to these guys and going, you saw something differently. So he goes on. He says, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. So he said, the message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolish, foolishness to Gentiles. So he said, in the wisdom of the world, they just get it all mixed up. And then he goes on, verse 24, and this is the passage that really captured my heart and changed me. I'll talk a little bit about why that happened. Um, he says, but to those whom God has called, in other words, those who have the called out ones, the, um, the church, the people who have accepted Christ as their Savior and are walking in submission to him, he said, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, it doesn't make any difference, and he goes on to other places, and he talks about, doesn't matter if you're a girl or a boy, doesn't matter if you're a Greek or a Jew, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, your station in life, doesn't, none of those things matter. This is what matters. He said, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So he puts something together. Here's, here's kind of, just take, take for a second and think about this. 
Everything that the Jews were looking for and everything that the Greeks thought they were looking for, they're both pursuing something, one in power, one in wisdom, and they separated. They were very separate in terms of how they thought and how they acted in the world that created literally two totally different cultures in the world. And he said, both of you guys are looking for something that is only found in Jesus, right, and him being crucified, and it's found together, never apart. And so that's what's really important. So, so a little bit of my experience as I came into the church, started studying the Bible. First of all, I was very skeptical about uh, Christianity. I was very skeptical because I'd seen people who claimed to be Christians, and you know they were mostly hypocrites. Turned out some of them were just growing Christians, and I didn't know what that meant. But you know, I just accused them of being hypocrites. Uh, some of them were, if I'm honest. Uh, I know I have been in the past. Not you guys. I think much better of you guys, but I have. I've been a hypocrite in the past. But I would notice things in the New Testament as I read the New Testament, and then I would look at church world. So the New Testament, I thought as I read the New Testament that we were modeling the church and our lives on the New Testament, right? That's what I assumed, because that's what everybody said we, we were doing, except for there were so many things in the New Testament that I wasn't seeing in our church. And then I would look at our church, there were so many things in the church that weren't in the New Testament. <laughs> so there's, there was this massive disconnect, and it was driving me crazy. So, of course, you know, I start asking questions because I'm already skeptical. And, and it turned out that questions were not, were not received very well. It's like, don't, just don't, you know, it's the don't ask, don't tell thing. It's like, yeah, right? Um, if you, you know, it's the emperor's new clothes, which is, I don't know why that book came to me. That, but that was the mindset was, you know, the, the church is naked, but it's acting like it's beautifully clothed. And, and everybody's pretending that the, that the king is, is clothed when obviously he's naked. And I'm, I kept asking the question, I'm, you know, I know I'm a little boy, but am I the only one that sees that the king is naked, right? <laughs> and, and it turned out I was <laughs> in many ways. Um, and if you talked about the king being naked, then you were, there was something wrong with you, not something wrong with the king, Right? And so there was something wrong with me, not something wrong with the church. And, and some of it, again, I, was, I did it in, in poor ways. I was immature. I was very young. So I asked terrible questions and asked them the wrong way and probably with some pride, not probably, with some pride. And, and I would do it wrong, but the questions were still valid, right? And the problem wasn't that they didn't just correct me and say, hey, you're asking this wrong or maybe have a better attitude when you do it. They just pretended like the question wasn't valid. And that ticked me off. I don't know about you. But that makes me angry because that's intellectually dishonest, and that's just not something I was willing to be. But apparently the church was. So as I kind of went into Bible college and I, you know, I felt a call into the ministry, I kind of put some of those things on hold, and, I was in, and some of it was you know, halfway answered. They would say things like, well, you know, culture was so different back then, and so you know, we're, we have to, we have to um, pull from Scripture you know, and recognize that we have to now uh, you know, mix that in, or not mix it, but pull it out of the old cu culture and put it in our new culture, and because of that, it looks different. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> Thank you for that answer it, that is wrong, right? <laughs> because that's, it's clearly not true. That's not cultural issues, but I didn't understand that in the beginning, so as I pursued it, this was my observation. I noticed that there were, it turns out there were two camps in, in the modern church, right? Not just the modern church, but throughout most of history, but especially in the modern church. And again, it's just an observation. Nobody told me this. Uh, I didn't read it anywhere. I just started noticing that I had, I had given my life to Jesus in a camp that was big on power, <laughs> right? They were big on Christ, the power of God, right? Um, and so I, I'm like, hey, that's awesome. Love power. That's super cool. Noticed that it was sometimes a little bit off, and sometimes, you know, people, because they had power, were power hungry, and they would do things with the power that was immature, broken, and sometimes even abusive, 
Um, but I noticed that there were other people that I would meet who also said they were Christians, but they weren't real Christians because they didn't have any power, obviously, right? And so they were from another camp called the Wisdom Camp. And so I noticed that there were a bunch of things in the Wisdom Camp that we didn't have in the Power Camp, but also noticed that there are things in the Power Camp that the Wisdom Camp did, didn't have. And so what does that look like? So the Wisdom Camp would be um, churches that emphasize the Scripture, character, doctrine, education, you know, a lot of the, the logos, the wisdom, growing up and thinking, having a critical mind, nothing wrong with any of those things, obviously. But they would de-emphasize the gifts of the Spirit, feeling, emotion, passion, right? Um, they would de-emphasize um, experience and say, you know, listen, your experience has to be governed by the Word. And I was like, well, I get that, but it seems like you're not governing it, you're just not allowing it. <laughs> right? It's like you just don't want any experience because any experience is bad, obviously. And that's just not true at all because, again, you see it in Scripture. But the power camp was the flip side of that. They emphasized the gifts of the Spirit and feeling and emotion and passion and experiential moments in God, right? Which were awesome because we were seeing those things and they were clear. It was clear, clearly biblical and we were seeing God move. But we would de-emphasize the Scripture. In other words, it, we would pick and choose the Scriptures. And most of the Scriptures we talked about were Scriptures about power. <laughs> right? So I got caught up in not understanding grace. It's one of the reasons why I had to, had to relearn the foundations of grace because our, our church wasn't big on understanding theology, right, <clears throat> in so many ways in our camp. Also big on feeling and emotion and it tended to be uh, more emphasis on the feeling and the emotion and the experience than on the truth of Scripture. And so we wouldn't weigh what was happening in, on this side with what the Scriptures speak to us about and the foundations that we're supposed to have. So anyway, big disconnect. Um, the power camp would de-emphasize so many things, but especially character and doctrines. Almost as if character was a sidelight. So you would see these incredibly powerful um, men of God who were leading churches and sometimes even movements, and they would be walking in the power of God, and they, then they would have a big fall. Their character would be, it would be discovered that they've been sleeping with prostitutes or stealing money from the church. And so, you know, people would kind of, well, make excuse, well, you know, they were under a lot of pressure from, you know, and that's true, but I noticed that the wisdom camps had similar pressure, <laughs> and most of them weren't stealing and sleeping with prostitutes, I'm just saying, right? So they would build their, their lives out of this experiential place, and oftentimes because of that, their character would suffer. So the church did with wisdom and power what the world tries to do with science and God, as an example. Because if you notice, um, everybody's telling us to follow the science. <laughs> and then we're like, hey, we're happy to follow the science, but also we're not stupid. Anybody agree with me? So, so we look at that and go, totally good. And so they take advantage and go, they, they, they shame you. And it's saying, well, you know, you're not very logical and you're getting emotional about this whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, I'm getting emotional because you're stupid, right? And you're making us all do things that you keep calling science. And then, one, you're not even doing it yourself, you big hypocrite. And then, two, I'm not real sure that that's actual science, right? So the world did the same thing in many ways um, where, where if you believe in God, you can't believe in science. You, you, they, have, they have positioned science and God opposite and against, and if you, if you are a critical thinker as a believer, you just know that's not true. I've studied science. I love science. Um, I, I love the universe. I love the bigness of it. I love the smallness of the microverse. I love all those things. And the more I discover from that, the more I see God. And if you, if you read the great scientists who were also believers, that was what they said. That science was never disconnected from God because it was discovering who he was and how he had operated, how he had set the world up to work. And it was a beautiful thing, and it caused them to glorify God, not think he wasn't there. So the world's done the same thing. If you lean into wisdom or the word, 
then you can't emphasize the Spirit of God. Um, it, it, it's in ways they have set the Word and the Spirit in opposition and against one another. So, you didn't see that in the New Testament. That's the thing. What you saw in the New Testament is you saw a beautiful picture of the Word of God because the beginning of the church, the only word that anybody had was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And so they sorted that out. Jesus over and over emphasized the, the Scriptures. He emphasized this is what the Lord has said. This is what God has said. This is his character. This is his nature. This is who he is. And he talked about the covenants, and he built towards so there's something coming that's going to make sense of all this, right? And so we have the New Testament, the, the Scriptures in the New Testament that came. But the, you remember the church, most of those were letters, and the church was formed out of that. It, it, was, it was formed, the, the New Testament word of God, the logos of the New Testament, was formed of the experience of the new church that, that had come on, on the scene, and at the same time, in, in conjunction with the Old Testament word, Scripture, right? So they, they, they managed to meld those two together and never violate the word of God in, in terms of the, the wisdom and the power of God. Or sorry, in the power of God. But here's what happens. Somewhere along the line, um, the church encouraged a silent divorce between wisdom and power. So as you guys know, divorces are painful. Um, some of you guys have been through them. Some of you, everybody knows somebody who's been through a divorce. So what happens is when that happens, um, it's, it's tough for the children as well. Obviously, it's tough for the parents, but it's also tough for the children. So one parent usually gets custody of the children, and the other only gets to visit occasionally, right? And so you see this breakdown in the church. What's happened is there's been this great divorce in the church between wisdom and power, and you find that many people are content to live with one parent or the other, right? And so what happens is because they live with one parent and the other parent only visits occasionally, what you often find is you often find, especially in the word camp, that the spirit has now become distant, and, and they don't know, you know, we're, we're living with this one parent called the word or wisdom, and now this other parent is distant. And we don't know him very well. And if we're honest, we're a little bit skeptical of him um, because, you know, the word parent has told us that he's unruly and he's dangerous and we should be careful. And if we're honest, in some ways we even fear him. And that's kind of where the church has ended up. It's become a divided family. What's interesting about this, you see one side of it is proud of their education. You know, the word and the wisdom camp is proud of their education. And, and the spirit camp is proud of its freedom. <laughs> right? And, and the wisdom parent is telling the kids how bad the other parent is and vice versa. You kind of see how this is going. But here's the thing. The parents are the ones who are brokenhearted. And here's what's really interesting. Unlike most divorces, the parents didn't choose the divorce. The kids did. And it ought not be like that. And that's what we want to go after in this series is to go after the fact that the Word and the Spirit are unfortunately honoring our choices as parents. And so often if you are skeptical of one parent or the other. So maybe you grew up in a, in a power church and you're a little bit skeptical of the word people. You know, they've taken their education too far and so you find fault with the word. And it's not that there isn't fault, but you don't find much fault with you. You're under, very understanding with your camp <laughs> or, or vice versa. And so that's the tendency we have. So how do we get here and, and how do we move on from that? How do we grow away? How do we fix this? That was been, that's been the question in my heart since I came into the ministry and began to understand this. How do we fix this? And one way that we fix it um, is we realize that we're biased. Right? So are you biased? <laughs> um, let me help you. You are. <laughs> the problem with that is the world takes this truth and they say you have a bias 
and then they beat you to death with virtue signaling, <laughs> right? And how you should be ashamed of yourself, and because you're biased, all these things that you've been biased have been, you're not at all wise in this. All these things that are biased are actually, uh, they, they're really true, and anything you think is really false. And that's not true at all. There's truth in both sides of these camps. And that's what I'm kind of going after. Um, the word that, that comes from this, bias, is a very interesting word. It, in the Latin, it means, it, it's by facts is where it originally comes from. And it means two-faced. <laughs> so bias means two-faced. And it was, it's interesting, then in, in the old bowling, um, like when we bowl now, you know, we bowl with, my brother's a fantastic bowler. He, he bowls, he's bowled a 300. He's got the ring, the whole nine yards. He's, it's fun, phenomenal watching bowl because he doesn't bowl like me. You know, I bowl straight. He doesn't bowl straight. He spins it, and, and it's amazing. It's beautiful every time he does it, strike after strike, and, and I hate him for it. But in the old bowling, in the old way they used to do bowling back in England, they actually fixed the ball, and one side of the ball was heavier than the other. And so when you would bowl, it wouldn't go in a straight line because it was biased. <laughs> it was on purpose built so that it would lean into one direction or another. So uh, another definition is a strong inclination of the mind or preconceived opinion about something or someone. So preconceived ideas. You have thoughts about something. So a bias can be favorable or unfavorable. Um, bias in favor or against an idea. And the truth is, everyone is biased. All of us are biased, especially when it comes to the word and, and, and the spirit, the wisdom and the power. Um, again, the world uses this truth to beat us up in so many ways, especially in virtue signaling. But here's the thing. It's what you do with the truth of bias that really matters, not the fact that you have it or don't have it. The truth is, all of us have it. But when you discover it, your character determines what you're going to do with the bias. So if you, if, you're, if you have bad character, what you'll do is you stick your head in the sand, pretend like you don't have bias, Right? But if you're honest and you have an intellectual, honest, an intellectually honest heart, what you'll do is you'll go, hey, how come the ball keeps going that direction? <laughs> right? <laughs> Every time I bowl, it's, you know, it goes, huh, that's interesting. I would like to do something. First, I would like to understand it. And I would like to say, is that okay that it does that? And probably the answer is no. And if that's the case, then what do I do about it? Right? And so just knowing about it's not enough. You actually have to do something about it. So how do I do it? How do I actually do something about the bias, especially if I grew up in a word camp or a spirit camp or I didn't have a combination of both um, and I've discovered that I'm biased in one direction or the other? Um, what do I do? The first thing is this. You admit it. Can't, can't do something about your problem unless you admit you got a problem, right? We know that about just about everything. So let me just tell you a story. So there's a story of a psychiatrist who had a patient who thought he was dead. So um, the psychiatrist just every, did everything he could to try to convince the patient that he wasn't dead. But the patient was absolutely convinced he was dead. So he came up with a brilliant idea. He said, I'm going to get him to study science. <laughs> Follow the science people. So he gives him some textbooks, on, medical textbooks or medical books. And he says, I want you to study um, what it means to, for, for you to be alive. You know, what does the body do when it's alive? So he studies this whole thing. So he gives him several weeks and he makes another appointment. Um, and the patient comes back, they meet together, so he said, how'd it go? And he said, man, it went really well. He said, well, what did you discover in your reading? And the, and the guy says, the patient says, I discovered that medical evidence proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that dead men don't bleed, right? So the psychiatrist is so happy. He's like, this is going to be so easy. So he produces a little pen, grabs the guy's hand, and he pricks his, his little finger, and the, the patient looks at it, and immediately a drop of blood forms, and the patient exclaims, in horror. 
Wow, dead men do bleed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's obviously what I'm trying to get at is if you don't admit it, if you don't at least entertain the idea that you have bias about this, and, and you know, truthfully, even some of the stuff that the world's trying to push on you, there's probably some truth in that as well. Maybe it, obviously look into that as well. But for the sake of this message in this series, Am I biased against the word of God if I grew up in a Pentecostal charismatic church? I don't know, are you? It's a good question to ask. What if I grew up in a word church where a lot of mainline denominations where we study the word of God? Uh, We had a guy in this church for a while. Um, He's not here any longer. Um, But he was here and I was preaching and he said, hey man, I'd love to do coffee. I have some questions. I'm like, sure. We sat down. He said, this whole thing about the Holy Spirit, man, I don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, okay, that's disconcerting because you went to Bible college. <laughs> He's like, yeah, we didn't, we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit in Bible college. Like, we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit in church. We just didn't. He just never came up. Like a third of the Trinity never came up. And I'm like, part of the problem I have with you right now is you're not angry <laughs> with your church for not having a discussion at some point in your life and your Bible college and that, but, but that's my point. He went through that whole thing. He was never anti-Holy Spirit because he was totally infatuated when he, when he discovered who the Holy Spirit was and, and how he worked in our lives. He was infatuated, but he was flat out ignorant until he connected with some people who spoke some truth into him in that arena. So we all like to think we're purely reasonable, right? I mean, I'm, you guys are crazy, but I'm okay, right? Same with driving. I'm like, I tell Karen all the time, I'm like, nobody in the city knows how to drive but me. And you, and I'm only saying that because you're with me. Because otherwise, I wouldn't even brought that up, right? Because I don't believe that, <laughs> right? But we do that. We tend to judge others by our own strengths and gifts, and you know, you know, our goodness and all that stuff. But but that's we know that's not true if we're honest. But we're significantly influenced by so many things, circumstances in our life, um, the culture in which we live. We have Rhett Hendricks, one of my favorite people on the planet, who has been living. He's visiting with us. Today. Hey, Rhett. <laughs> I didn't mean. I mean, sing you out, but Rhett's been living in England for a while, and I think it's very interesting. He has the most southern name a human being can have with a name like Rhett, and I imagine that comes up from time to time when he's hanging out in England. Um, we lived in England for a while, and the culture, when we went, we went over there, we thought, oh, this is going to be so much like America. Uh, no, like not even the language, it turns out. We're like, you know, they're talking about an articulated lorry and a bumble shoot and, 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 a, and a bobby, and I was like, I have no idea what you guys are saying, right, because I don't know what those words mean. But the whole point is, is we grow up in a culture, it influences, but what happens so often is it's influencing us without us knowing that it's actually influencing us, right? So you see the picture. Our family in which we grew up, our family of record, we call it, uh, teachers, the church we attended, our desire, desires, our goals, our disappointments, our tragedies, and our traumas tend to create bias in us, and so often we don't even know it's there. Like, have you ever prayed for somebody to be healed and they weren't healed? I have a lot. But I've also prayed for people to be healed, and they were. Right? So, so the danger is, you know, if we're not careful, our experience tends to determine what we believe about our life and about God. And that's a really, really dangerous place to be because the majority of Christians believe what they believe because godly and respected people have said to them, this is true. That happened with me in Bible college. They're, they're like, uh, I remember one of my favorite phrases that came from a, a very respected um, Bible school professor who is now the pastor of the church um, that we were attending at the time. 
said, your, your, dead man is, your old man is never so dead he can't be resurrected. Except, not at all biblical. But he was adamant about it, and he taught it, and it was one of the foundations of how he taught his, his church now. That your, your, dead man is, your old man is never so dead he can't be resurrected. It's not at all what the Bible says. So he's preaching something completely unbiblical. Here's a thought. Um, what about Peter? Peter, I don't know if you guys know, but Peter is a pretty substantial figure in the Bible, right? So um, he healed a lot of people, one of the few people in the Bible besides Jesus who raised somebody from the dead, right? Um, he was so powerful that his shadow would fall on people and they would be healed. That was probably more about their faith than his shadow, but that's another story for another time. And then um, in the book of Galatians, he comes to the Galatian church and puts them under false doctrine. Now, remember, he ended up writing you know, First and Second Peter, so he was pretty substantial in the in the Bible as well. <laughs> pretty good. Uh, I believe he was 100% inspired in that. Don't have the doubt at all. But what he came to teach in the, in, the, in the city of Galatia, Paul said it was so messed up that he literally had to rebuke him to his face because it was so blatant. He said, this so, you, you, you did this so poorly and have come up with this doctrine. It was so bad that even Barnabas got caught up in this, who was one of the fellow apostles who helped him found a church. So here's a guy that the Catholic Church calls their first pope, right? And also another story for another day. But he was 100% wrong, <laughs> right? He'd gotten caught up in something, in a doctrine that was really a doctrine of demons, and he didn't know it. He was, he was literally taking all his charisma, all his reputation, and he was preaching something that another church leader had to come up and just headbutt him and say, dude, you're so wrong on this. And, and I'm going to show you how. And thankfully, he, he received it, recognized what he was doing, and stepped away from that. And then you see later on, he writes about Paul, how much he respects Paul and his writing and who he is as, as an apostle. So we can get it wrong. I, I think I probably belabored that point. <laughs> so let me just give you four reasons why, because if, if we're going to go after bias, let's pick one today, right? If we're going to do wisdom and power, so let's spend the, the remaining of this message going after a, a certain bias. So let's pick one. I'll, I'm going to pick going after the bias against the power of God, the spirit of God, right? Wisdom and power. And the reason why I'm doing that is because that's the prevailing one that we deal with as a culture. So most churches, there's more churches that believe are in the wisdom camp than there are in the, in the power camp in the Western world. Now that's not true anywhere else. In Central America, South America, especially um, the wisdom camp is far bigger. Um, Pentecostal and charismatic churches are, and in the world in general, are, they number more than the wisdom camp churches, actually. But in the Western world, this is the one we deal with. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to give you four reasons. The, the first reason is a worldly reason. So it's, it turns out that the prevailing opinion, the prevailing worldview, and a worldview is very simple. It's, a, it's culturally dependent, generally subconscious. In other words, you don't know you're, you're walking in it fundamental organization of the mind. It's, it's, it's the way you're thinking, and then it turns out this concept manifests itself in a set of presuppositions. It's a way you think that's already set, and they're presupposed, right? Um, it's how you feel, it's how you think, and it turns out that you begin to act in predictable patterns based on your worldview. So you know people who have a worldly worldview. Um, naturalism is the biggest one that we, that we see. Naturalism just simply says, um, nature's it. If there's a box, nature's in the box, there's nothing outside the box, <laughs> right? Science, if it can't be proven scientifically, which is a, a, a dangerous thing because 
nothing is proven scientifically until it is, and even then, right, it turns out that we learn something later on that might tell us something different about what we thought was true. So, but naturalism is the prevailing worldview in the Western world. And so because of that, here's what's really interesting about naturalism. Naturalism just, it just presupposes there's no such thing as a, as a God, as spirit, as anything transcendent that's outside of you. It, it goes so far as to say, if, if you think you're special, <laughs> that somehow you're special on this planet, because look at you, you know, out of you know, all the evolution, here you are, and look how special you are. That's just a lie. You're not special at all. You're just an, an aberration of evolution, and so you know, enjoy it while you can because you know, very soon you're going to die and it's all going to go away. Pretty depressing, right, when you think about it? So this is naturalism.org, okay? Just if you want to look it up, it's really fun. This is one of the phrases they kind of get toward the end of it. This is what they say. By staying true to science, uh, I so want to comment, but I'm not going to. By staying true to science, our most reliable means of representing reality Naturalists find themselves at home in the cosmos. Of course you do. Astonished at the sheer scope and complexity of the natural world and so grateful for the chance to participate in, wait for it, the grand project of nature coming to know herself. First of all, how does he get off predisposing nature's pronoun? I'm not going to go there. I want to go there. I'm going to leave that alone for the moment. Probably I'll go back to the website and it'll be changed. <laughs> That's the way it goes. But what was interesting about this is even in their trying to describe the fact that there is no transcendent, they end up with nature's transcendent. Isn't that interesting? And, and I, you know, we make fun, but we all do this. And this is why it's so important. Like, I read that and go, what kind of idiot believes that? And I was like, oh, yeah, I did. Right? And you did too, I'll bet, at some point in your life. You believe this. There's nothing outside of nature. Of course, we know that that's different. But here's the challenge. In this one, this reason for why people don't believe in the things of the Spirit, what happens is that worldview, that natural worldview, naturalism, bleeds over into the church. So you get saved, and, and you're like, you're still, you're still a naturalist. Because it's subconscious so often, you don't really think about it, so nobody challenges it, so you're just natural. Which is really ironic in the point that the only way to get into the kingdom is to believe a guy was raised from the dead supernaturally and that God is above nature, right? He's outside the box. He's inside the box, but he's also, he's the box at the end of the day, right? And we're inside the box. But we, we, we buy into this because this is what we do. They, they, there's doctrines that come along that, that, again, are built around experience as opposed to truth, what Scripture says, and so they say, well, I prayed for people to be healed and they weren't healed. Therefore, God no longer heals. I've seen abuse in the prophetic. Therefore, the prophetic is evil and we shouldn't do it anymore. And it turns out that we don't need it anymore because the only reason prophetic existed or the supernatural existed in the early church anyway was to establish the doctrine of the church with, through the apostles. That's done. No need for it anymore. Right? Except for that's also not at all biblical. But nobody says that because everybody's looking at the king who's naked and they're looking around and nobody's pointing out the fact that the king's naked. So I guess maybe I'm the only one who thinks the king naked. So really the problem's me. See how it works? So here's th- that's one, the big one in the world. Here's three others, and I'll go through these quick. Three main reasons why we don't believe in the supernatural, in the, wiz- or sorry, in the power camp in the church. One basic, simple reason is that you just haven't seen it. 
You ever mention the guy who said, man, I didn't even know there were the, whether there'd be a Holy Spirit or not, which is a quote from the book of Acts, by the way. But this was a guy I met, and he'd gone through his whole life. He'd spent his whole life in church and went to Bible school and never had conversations around the Holy Spirit. So he's literally ignorant. He didn't know that the supernatural was available to him. He was intrigued when he found out it was. Right? And eventually he got a little upset and angry that his denomination and his family and his church had been withholding something from him for so long. But how many of them were in the same camp that he was? So ignorance is a big one, obviously. But ignorance is what we call an argument from silence, right? So when you say, I didn't, even, I didn't know there was anything supernatural, um, did Peter have any kids in the Bible? Most people say, I don't think Peter had any kids. You know, it turns out if you're in the Catholic Church you, and you're a priest, you ought not have kids. That's just something you ought not do. And so, so, you know, if Peter had kids, that kind of violates that a little bit. So let's just, let's just say Peter didn't have any kids. Except for, we have no idea whether Peter had any kids or not. We do know he was married, but we don't know if he had kids. So, and the reason we don't know is because the Bible doesn't say whether he does or whether he doesn't. So, again, you can speculate all you want. But if you do, you're, you're, you're arguing from silence. And it's a really horrible way to think especially if you're trying to think biblically. So you're ignorant, you didn't know, but you, why don't you know, right? Uh, so it's a good question. Secondly, people who do kind of understand, recognize, okay, maybe there were some things going on in the early church, the supernatural was there, power was moving, but we don't have that anymore. We've been taught by our leaders, because again, godly, kind men have said to us that supernatural no longer exists. Um, we don't see quality miracles in church history, right? But why don't you? <laughs> right? Probably not because there aren't any, because I've done some research. Can you imagine? And it uh, turns out there's a lot of his, mis, uh, miracles throughout the church history. Um, most of the time, people don't look for miracles in church history because they already assume that there are any. Right? So they're living out their bias, and you, you get it. But let me give you an example. Augustine in the 5th century um, started his whole life in his ministry. He's one of the greatest thinkers of the early church, early church fathers. He started out believing miraculous gifts were not for the day, that they were, like everybody said, they were establishing the church, no longer available. Uh, but towards the end of his life, he retracted that. And he said, I, I don't believe that anymore. And one reason why, he writes this in, in his book called The City of God, again, fifth century. He said in less than two years, he knew of more than 70 recorded and verified, hear that, recorded and verified instances of miracles in his city of Hippo. He was in northern Africa. He was a, um, a church leader in northern Africa. And in his cities, large city, more than, um, he said, 70 in two years recorded and verified miracles. Some people even being raised from the dead in that. That, I did the math. I'm not good at math, but I did the math. That's about um, one miracle every 10 days. Over the course of two years. I'm sure they were clustered, maybe not exactly like that. But here's my point. What do you do with that? And, and we're going to get into a little bit of this um, because it turns out that what people have done with that has said, well, he was ignorant. And uh, true story, guys who've written lately said he was ignorant. Those weren't really miracles, even though they were recorded and verified. And he was, you know, his theology's off. <laughs> right? You see how the bias kicks in. So D.A. Carson who's a highly respected New Testament scholar who happens also to be Baptist, right, who typically is in the wisdom camp, not the power camp, said this. 
there is enough evidence that some form of charismatic gifts continued sporadically across the centuries of church history that it is futile to insist on doctrinaire or doctrinal grounds that every report is either spurious or the fruit of the demonic activity or psychological aberration. Now, I don't normally name names. Um, John MacArthur um, has said numerous times, I watched him in a video recently, he still holds to this theory, that, that charismatic, Pentecostal, anything is an aberration, is what he called it. So here's the thing. John MacArthur is an amazing preacher on a million different things. He's very well known recently for taking this big stand during COVID with his church to the tune of $10,000 a day and he, that they violated and pushed back on his church in California, pushed back on the governor there, and so took a huge stand. So much respect for John MacArthur. Except the brother's ignorant as a sack of hammers when it comes to the things of the Spirit. I, I, I think he's a better preacher than me. I think he's way more wise, definitely more educated, tremendous experience, have a million places of respect that I have for John MacArthur, but not in that. Because not only is he speaking from ignorance, he's condemning what God has not condemned. Now, the Bible says, don't forbid the speaking of tongues. Do you know how many churches in the wisdom camp forbid speaking in tongues? So I don't have a problem saying, hey, be careful. You can get this wrong. The whole book of Corinthians is Paul saying, you, you guys got this wrong. And I want to help you fix it. Because if you do it wrong, it's bad. It's, it's going to do a lot of damage to the church. He literally said of the Corinthian church, your meetings are doing more harm than good. Now think about that. So you can really screw it up in the power camp. Not that you can't screw it up in the wisdom camp, right? We never get that wrong, except for the doctrine of grace and, you know, and, uh, uh, <laughs> and the foundations of who we are as believers was lost until the 1500s. So you, know, you can't get the doctrinal things and the wisdom stuff wrong except for that's the whole point of the Reformation is because the wisdom camp got that wrong, right? So here's the thing. Let me, let me wrap it up with this. I understand people have been hurt. I, I recognize it. But abuse or misuse of the gifts in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the power camp, is no argument against its proper use. And that's foundational. It's what we want to go out of, go after. But it's also true in the wisdom camp. Just because somebody screwed it up in the wisdom camp doesn't mean that God isn't, doesn't, he doesn't have wisdom for us. And we can go after that. And we'll do that as we go into this. So I want you to keep an open mind as we go into this series. Um, not so open that your brain falls out. <laughs> right? It's, it's, fine to, it's fine to be um, a little skeptical. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and the Bible says test the spirit. Right? Test the spirits. See whether they be of God or not. It turns out there's ways to do that. You can do that. But let me close with this passage. You know, I read in 1 Corinthians 1.24 about Jesus, the cross, what happened on the cross, Jesus did for us on the cross, is both the wisdom and the power of God. And somewhere along the line, the enemy said, I can't stop the church, but if, if I can hamstring them by separating them into two camps, then the wisdom camp is going to go after all these amazing things that God has given them as an inheritance and in wisdom, but they'll be fully lacking in any power. And if I can get the power camp to ignore and be you know, angry and a little bit suspicious of the wisdom camp, then they'll have all the power, tremendous power, but character and, and, and understanding of Scripture and foundations, they're going to be off. And so they're going to be, they're going to be cannons that aren't strapped down really well, right? Loose cannons. Um, and so there was a plan from the enemy. And so my passion is, as, a, as a pastor and as a leader in the church 
is to remind you that what the enemy has meant for harm, God can turn around and make it work for good. And so what would it look like if we as a church went after both of those with equal abandon? What if we said, hey, when someone says, hey, what kind of church are you guys? Or a word church? Or a spirit church or power church? Well, yeah, we're the church. That's what we are, right? And we're going to be both of those. And so does that mean we're going to get it wrong sometimes in the power camp? Um, yeah, we are. We're going to do some, you're going to see some immature responses to the Holy Spirit before, oftentimes, before you see mature responses to the Holy Spirit. But that's what fathers and mothers are for. It's what people are for who, who said, I understand there's bias, and I'm going, to, I'm going to really be a critical, I'm going to use God's wisdom to speak into my life. I'm going to use the foundations of the Scripture, and, and I'm, going to, I'm really going to go after this. Let me give you an example of what it looks like, potentially, and then I'm going to pray for us. Um, we had a lady in our church in Tyler, Texas. I was a young pastor, 25 years old. Even then, uh, I was in a conference one time, and some guy prophesied over me. He said, man, I don't know what this means, but for you, it, just, it must be biblical. Does that make any sense to you? I said, it makes total sense, because <laughs> if you want to define me, define me that way, right? It must be biblical. So this person, very prophetic, she comes up to me, sees into the Spirit all, all the time. She was typically, she was raised in that power camp, had incredible encounters. She was very gifted, but her foundation in the Word of God was minimal at best. So she comes up to me, she said, um, Pastor Dave, I saw a picture of the devil sitting at a desk, and demons were lined up as far as the eye could see, and every demon was coming. He was giving them an assignment against you and the church. And she said, oh God, Pastor Dave, what are we going to do? And I recognized the teaching moment, as I often do, so I taught with sarcasm, as I often do. And I said, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to go get Chinese food because I'm hungry. <laughs> I know it was wrong, I know. I was 25, come on, give me some credit. So, I didn't say it was right. I just say well, that's what I did. So why did I do that? Well, I wanted to get her attention. I did. She was angry with me. So I got her attention quick. And she said, do you not care? I said, I care deeply. But for some reason, I'm not bothered by it, and you are. I wonder why. I said, would you like to know? And she said, yeah. I said, well, first of all, thank you. And I believe what you saw is true and accurate. Saw something in the spirit that we can't see in the natural. Get it. Felt it. As soon as you said it, that's, that's true, right? I need confirmation from the Lord. This is true. But I also know what the Bible says about me and the church. No weapon is fashioned against me, right? Will prosper, right? I, I know the truth about the church, what Scripture says about the church, that everything else is going to come after the church, and the church, when it's all said and done, will still be standing. I know that if I'm in Christ right, then nothing the enemy can do is going to take me out of Christ. So whatever his plans are, I want to pay attention. And I told you this, I said, I want to pay attention. If you see anything else, please come tell me. But I am not going to let it keep me up at night because who I know God to be, both from Scripture and from my experience with him, both of those, tell me a truth that you don't understand. So it's, it's driving you crazy emotionally. You're walking in fear, Right? You're walking in fear even though the power of God just moved profoundly in you. And I just want to challenge us to go, listen, we've got a bunch of people who grew up in the power camp, and I love you guys. I did not. I grew up in the no camp, <laughs> the heathen camp. That's the one I grew up in, right? But Southern, moral, so I struggled with grace because, you know, if you're moral, 
You know, we say grace and we say ma'am if you're not into that, right? You know. <laughs> so that was my theology, country music theology. And so I, so I just, but, I, but here's what I know, that when I got saved into one camp, one of the things that God challenged me to do was say, hey, I love this camp. I love them. They're, look at what they're doing, right? Changing the world so many ways. But there's some problems that need to be addressed. And one of the challenges we have as the church is we need you and I, not just leaders, but you. God says that my job is to equip you for the work of your ministry. We get this mindset that I live in the world and from time to time I do Jesus things. And God's version of that is you live in Jesus and from time to time you do world things. But the whole time you're on mission and you have a father who's equipped you with both foundations and, and, and the strength of his word that is true and is never going to fade away, and you know that. And at the same time, he's given you gifts, supernatural encounters and powers. And if you think of it as the word and the wisdom as a river that flows through us all the time, it's always there. Whether I feel like I'm saved or don't feel like I'm saved, I'm saved. Not because I feel like it or don't, but because the Bible tells me so, right? But at the same time, we have moments where that river kind of gets backed up because of motion or feeling or the enemy attacks or whatever, and the river seems to be backed up and there's, it's, it's dammed up and it's not flowing the way it ought to be. And then someone comes along and takes this piece of dynamite and throws it over into the river and blows up whatever is stopping the plan of God in the world, right? That's dunamis, by the way. That's 1 Corinthians' definition of the power of God. Dynamite, an explosive, momentary, incredible thing that happens doesn't change that the river's the river. One's not better than the other. They're both equally as powerful. And so let me leave you with this scripture. This is one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible. I say that about every scripture, but I'm not wrong. <laughs> First Corinthians 2, 4, 5. And my message, this is Paul. He had just come from Athens. He'd preached one of the most profound sermons. We studied it in Bible college. They said it's the greatest message outside of Jesus preaching in, in Matthew 5 and 6, greatest sermon ever preached. Paul preaches this message full of wisdom. He talks, he uses their philosophers to, to talk to them about logic and wisdom and how God thinks and works and how they've missed it. And they're all enamored with it, enamored with this, until he gets to the part where he said, and God raised Jesus from the dead. And then the, the Bible quick, quickly takes a turn, and it says, and people left, <laughs> they stopped listening to him, some people said, hey, I want to hear you again on this. I'm intrigued. Uh, and a few people believed. That's what it says. The rest of them just bailed. They're like, Got, what, the moment you said the sky fairies raised somebody from the dead, pfft, whatever, right? In arrogance. So he comes away from that, having not established the church history, you see, not established much of a church there. The next place he goes is Corinth. And when he comes to Corinth, this is what he says to them. Having just come from this encounter, this is what he says. When I came to you, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's three things that when you preach about Jesus are really interesting. Um, four really, but three primary. He had power over sickness. He had power over demons. And because of that, we know he had power over sin. And the reason I know that in Scripture, he's healing a guy 
First he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And everybody gets in an uproar. All the wisdom people get in an uproar says, you know, you can't say that. You can't, nobody can forgive sins but God. And he says to them, he looks at them, he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the guy and he says, take your bed, pick it up, walk. I might have the wrong one. Maybe it's a hand and he heals the hand. Either way, he says, I'm going to demonstrate supernaturally with an encounter what is true from who I am in my word and, and, and who I, my identity. But I'm going to show you. And here's the problem with that. So many people in the church want to argue with people with words. And there's not, it's not wrong. That helped me a lot. I read a book called Mere Christianity and More Than a Carpenter. Those two books helped me get past my skepticism intellectually to get into the place where I, the encounters I was having with, with God, I could actually believe them. But I've seen this happen more often than not. Someone struggling who's been in church their whole life with sickness or a challenge or an attack from the enemy, and one prophetic word turns everything around. One supernatural encounter turns everything around. And so I want to challenge everybody in this room. Maybe you don't think you have bias, but I'm telling you, you do. I know because I do. And I want to challenge you to go after that bias with a vengeance and say, God, if there's anything that in me that is keeping me from walking in the fullness of your power, Lord, would you reveal that to me so I can deal with it? The Bible says, lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. And so often we think that's something like smoking, drinking, you know, cussing, or whatever your you know, particular sin is. But it could, could it also be your unbelief? I pray for people to be healed a lot. You have too. And when I do that, I'm really careful when I pray not to pray for somebody because I've seen this happen. We, many of us still do this, and I want to challenge you. But this is an example. I'll pray for somebody to be healed as if I want them healed more than God does. I'll say, Lord, if you were really good, God, you know, come on now. Don't you see? Are you blind? I don't, I don't say that, but I mean that. But what if I just said, God, I want to cooperate with you and I want to pray for somebody and I want to trust, first of all, that I can't heal anybody. But you have called me to be an agent to operate by your spirit who lives inside of me in a supernatural way that's above me, right? And that you're going to begin to do that and I have to grow in that just like I grow in anything else. And that I could say, Lord, would you speak to me about why this person isn't being healed? Lord, would you speak to me why I'm struggling with something? that I can't seem to get past. And what I've discovered is so often we can read the Bible all day long and, there's, and it's a good foundation, but if you're deciding whether you're called to Japan or the Philippines, the Bible's not going to tell you one, one way or the other. The only thing that's going to do that is the Spirit of God who lives inside of you, who will operate in you right here and right now. And so I really want to go after this in our church because I think in Big C Church that this is something that we desperately need to grow in, because the world needs supernatural, powerful, faith-based, word-based children, fathers and mothers of God to operate in a realm that they don't even know exists, to set them free, to break them free. Remember Jesus' passage, the passage in Luke, this is why he has sent me. I'm coming to break some things open. I'm going to heal the blinded eyes. I'm going to set at liberty those who are oppressed, Right? Jesus talked about raising the dead, all these things, he said, and more 
are you going to do? Because I'm going to go be with my Father, and I'm going to send my Spirit, and He's going to be with you. So I just want to challenge you. Maybe don't start by going to a cemetery to try to raise somebody from the dead. I mean, you know, good luck with that. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not an easy journey. If it were, we'd all be doing it. But I just want to challenge us. Let's lean into the things of the Spirit. Are we going to get it wrong? Yes. But we have fathers and mothers among us. We're going to go, dude, phenomenal thing God just did. I want to talk to you about, you know, how you did it. <laughs> there might be a better way, a more mature way. Let's have a mature response of the Holy Spirit. And you're like, yeah, but did you see God move? Yeah, but maybe he moved more in spite of you than because of you, so let's have that conversation, right? But if we do that, God's going to begin to break out, not just among us. He's going to break out in our, in our world, and we're going to see a revival in these last days like we've never seen before in all of church history. Amen? Will you stand with me? Let's ask him. Let's invite him to come and do that among us you know, as we close. Holy Spirit, Lord, we love you. Um, Lord, forgive us for so often we have misunderstood you and maybe not studied to show ourselves approved like we ought. But Lord, your heart has always been for us, even in our brokenness, our mistakes, our ignorance, Lord, even in our unbelief, Lord, you come and you help us with unbelief. We know that. So, Lord, would you do that now? We invite you in to move in power. Lord, we invite you, Lord, to challenge us because this is how it works is we're going to have to take risks and, Lord, we're going to get it wrong and we might look foolish and we might do dumb things, Lord, that we have to apologize for. But, Lord, I would rather lean into you and I would rather get it somewhat wrong and see your power break out in people's lives and really see people rescued. Lord, would you do what Paul said that you did in the Corinthian church? Would you come and demonstrate yourself by power? Lord, we want to see more and more of your power break out among us. Lord, break out in us first. Lord, we want to receive that in you. Lord, we want to learn of you. We want to grow in you. And Lord, then more than anything, we just want to release your presence and your power and your great love, Lord, your desire to break the enemy down and to rescue people, Lord. We want to see that work in us, but also through us in other people's lives. Lord, would we be that people in these last days that would just say yes to you, no matter what you're saying. We just give that to you, Lord, and invite you into this in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, uh, need a word from the Lord, our team will be up here. We'd love to pray for you guys. Otherwise, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.